This evening we're going to consider being dead to the law. We're looking at Romans chapter 7. If you cast your mind back to chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I think they're key verses. I've come back to them several times. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul went on to explain what the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is and what it is to be saved and justified by the grace of God through faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to being saved by works of the law. In fact, when it comes to the law, the very opposite of being saved is true. For example, in chapter 2, Paul showed that the law, that those moralistic people who teach it and who claim to live by the law in order to justify themselves before God, that same law only serves to convict them of their own sins. And in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, Paul said, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. Makes you guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You must surely know from your own experiences that far from justifying you, the law only exposes and magnifies just how sinful you really are. As such, if you're relying on what you imagine to be your obedience to the law for acceptance by God, you've got serious problems. Your acceptance by God can only ever be in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the curse of the law upon himself when he was nailed to the cross. Having lived a sinfully perfect life in in conformity with the law and who is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven, highly exalted. We have seen that all who are trusting in Jesus are not under the law. They are under grace, which means that sin no longer has dominion over them. In other words, they are no longer slaves to sin. If you're under the law, you are a slave of sin. Those who are under grace are now servants of the Most High God, servants of holiness and of righteousness. Today, as we enter into chapter 7, starting with an example, Paul goes on to describe in a very personal way what deliverance from the law 
actually means. Although it is personal to Paul, all true Christians will inevitably relate to what Paul says from their own person, from their own personal experience as Christians. We'll look again at verses 1 through to 4 in chapter 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law have dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which have an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that ye should bring forth fruit unto God. There's a lot about law in those verses, isn't there? And let's be clear about this. It's not just talking about the the commandments, the Ten Commandments. It's not just talking about law, uh, God's law rather. It's talking about any law. And uh, there would be laws in most countries, if not all countries, relating to marriage. And there are people in all countries who seek to justify themselves before God in what they perceive to be their, their, their obedience and living good lives as they see it. Doing the right things as they see it. So, but I don't want you to think that Paul is just talking about the Ten Commandments as important as they are. The chapter starts with Paul addressing Roman Christians as brethren. I say Roman Christians, they might be um, converted Jews or pagan Gentiles, Greeks, whatever. And he addresses them as brethren in verse 1 and my brethren in verse 4. You'd have to go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 13 for the last time that Paul used that term of endearment and you can be sure that he has used it here in verse in chapter 7, verses 1 and verse 4, as a way of wrapping his arms around the around fellow believers in Christian love as he is about to open up his heart and share some very personal details about his own struggles with sin. First of all, Paul says, know ye not, as if to say, you must surely know. And then he goes on to tell them what they must surely already know. That the law has power over a man only as long as he lives. It makes perfect sense that death brings an end to a person's obligations to the law. Not just God's law, as I say, any law. Although, having said that, the consequences of rebellion against God's law 
reach into eternity for all who are not saved and justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses marriage laws to illustrate his point that death brings to an end the law's power over a person. The first thing to note is that it is not the law that puts that is put to death. It is the person. For example, in verse 2, the husband dies. And in verse 4, Paul talks about you becoming dead to the law and not the other way round. The law is still very much alive to condemn everyone who is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the death of the husband frees a wife from the marriage laws, so too has the death of the Lord Jesus Christ ended the dominion of God's law over all who were trusting in him. Obviously, the death of the husband only frees his wife. The death of the husband doesn't free anyone else. It just frees his wife from that obligation that she has unto the law. Likewise, the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ only brought deliverance from the law, not to everyone, but to those who are trusting in him. To those who are in him, having been planted in the likeness of his death and raised up to newness of life in him. Dear Christian, in verse 4, Paul is saying that since death has brought an end to the law's dominion over you, that leaves you free to be married to another, to the risen Saviour, that you might bring forth fruit to God. What is that fruit? Jesus had much to say about bringing forth fruit in John's Gospel, chapter 15, where he declared himself to be the true vine. In order to bring forth fruit, a branch needs to be vitally connected to the vine and drawing on its sap. It needs to be a living branch continually drawing on the sap of the main stem. And Jesus, in John chapter 15, declares himself to be the true vine. So, the person who brings forth much fruit is a living branch drawing on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. That is the only way you will bring forth fruit, or good fruit, by by being savingly united to Jesus. Psalm 1 describes the man who is blessed as being like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. But what is that fruit that that the Christian brings forth? Well, Galatians chapter 5 speaks of fruit of the Spirit as being love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Is that a description of you? I'll, I'll, I'll go through it again. Love, joy, 
peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. At which point do you start squirming just a little bit, perhaps? Meekness, temperance. It's not a description of me, but I know who it is a description of. Jesus. It's like that description of love in Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind. It's a picture of Jesus, a description of Jesus. But coming back to the fruit of the Spirit, when you think about that fruit being a description of that, uh, a description of Jesus, and it is Jesus is that fruit in its purest form. It ought to follow that all who are living branches in the true vine, in Jesus, drawing on His grace continually drawing on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, will inevitably bring forth fruit and it ought to be evident in the lives that they now live, having been crucified with Christ and having been raised up to newness of life in him. Christians must surely bring forth at least something of their great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. But something, we're all different. But each one of us who has a testimony of being in Christ must surely also have a testimony of bringing forth fruit. Something of Jesus in our lives that we now live by faith in him. The point is that when you were under the law, all your righteous acts were as filthy rags and stained through with sin. But now you are under grace. To varying degrees you bring forth not just a few lousy leaves, dead leaves or anything like that, or perhaps a bit of a fragrance, but you bring forth fruit that is pleasing to God your Father. Good fruit through being in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. For when we were in the flesh, we read in verse 5 there, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. When we were in the flesh means when we were controlled by our sinful nature, controlled by it. And it describes an unregenerate and spiritually dead person who is completely and utterly controlled by sin. More so than they would ever imagine. Everything that they think and say and do is controlled by sin. Note that the great Apostle Paul includes himself before he was saved by the grace of God. He says, for when we were in the flesh, including himself. The motions or passions of sin spoken of there in verse 5 are experienced in the heart and mind and include what? They include jealousy, lust, anger, hatred, ill will, in fact all manner of sin. 
As the 19th century Church of Scotland minister Robert Murray McShane said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Those sinful motions or passions express themselves physically. The sin of the heart could actually be seen and that is because it was at work in the members of the body. It could be seen in a clenched fist, shouting, lust of the eyes, angry expressions, increased heartbeat, theft, murders, lies and so much more. Even now it can rear its ugly head. I'm talking past tense but let's, let's face it, even as Christians we can still relate to that. It can still rear its ugly head as it did with King David. When he was fast bound in sin, he said in Psalm 32 that his bones waxed old through his roaring all day long. So in that case, it wasn't so much the sin that was manifest, the sin of murder, adultery, when his bones waxed old all day long and his the moisture was like the drought of the summer, he was dry, it was the hand of God heavy upon him. Nevertheless, it was because of sin. And the thing to realise here, and I, I know you understand this because I'm sure I'm not the only one who experiences this. Sin, that thing called sin, that's in the heart, it can't be separated from everything else about us. It impacts us on us in every conceivable way. Mentally, bodily, especially so in someone who is unregenerate, not trusting in Christ, not drawing on his grace, not not united to him through faith, not living a born again life. The sin of the heart impacts on us mentally, on our bodies, and even the members of our bodies. We looked at that last week. And those members of the bodies can so easily be used as instruments of sin. We're told in verse 5 that the evil evil motions or passions were aroused by the law. John Calvin said, The unbeliever's rebellious nature is awakened when restrictions are placed on him and made him and make him want to do the very things that the law forbids. As strange as it might seem, the law itself, by its very prohibitions, generates sinful impulses which lead to breaking the law. So, in fact, this is one of the functions of the law to stimulate our sinful flesh. Forbidden fruit is sweet. The natural tendency in man is to desire the forbidden thing. That's what the law does. The consequence when you were under the law and a slave of sin before trusting in Jesus is that you brought forth bad fruit unto death. As we have already seen in the last verse in chapter 6, 
The wages of sin is death, which means that when Jesus comes again, no longer as the sacrifice for sin, but as the judge of all the earth, he will say to those who have never brought forth good fruit unto God, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And that will be your just deserts. Verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held. That we should serve in newness of spirit. And not in the oldness of the letter. So talking about past there. When you were held under the law. And the law served to expose and magnify your sin. But it's different now as a Christian. Oldness of the letter stands in contrast to newness of the spirit. Spoken of in verse 6 there. Where oldness of the letter refers to our old relationship with the law. When we were under the law. And newness of the spirit refers to our new relationship with the law, as people who are now under grace. Therefore, we need to consider what the two terms actually mean. The Roman Christians, when they were unregenerate Jews, or else they were Gentile pagans, and also all of us here, before we were saved and justified by faith in Jesus, were held under the law. In other words, whether we liked it or not, whether we knew it or not, we were held under the dominion, the power of the law, which pronounces curses for disobedience. However, praise be to God that you have been delivered from the penalty and the curse of his law through faith in Jesus, who, as I've said already, took the curse and the punishment upon himself in the place of his redeemed, having fulfilled all of the law's demands. And now you serve God, not in some airy-fairy manner, but in the newness of spirit. And what that doesn't mean is that you magically, somehow or other, you magically do all those things that are pleasing to God. Because you love God so much, that you now do everything that pleases God. Really? Is that how it works? What it does mean, however, is that there is a work of God within you, whereby God has put his law in your inward parts and written his law in your heart. He has given you the Holy Ghost who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. The oldness of the letter demanded obedience as the condition for life, whereas the newness of the spirit produces obedience because of this inner work of God. The newness of the spirit produces obedience in all true Christians as evidence of spiritual life. It's all of God. I hope you realise that. As we progress with chapter 7 next week, God willing, 
we'll see that even though Christians now serve God in the newness of spirit, they most certainly do not live sinlessly perfect lives. Paul bears testimony to that. Even so, as we shall see, if you are savingly united to Jesus and drawing on his grace, a grace that saves you from your sins, a grace that keeps you, and a grace that will take you home to be with him when you die, because ultimately your acceptance before God is forevermore in Jesus who loved you and who gave himself for you. Amen.